Next Chapter Podcasts. When I started this podcast journey a few months ago, I'll admit I had no idea what I was getting into. I was genuinely just curious, amused, and a little depressed about the state of our world. But instead of running for office or buying Twitter, I did the third most self-indulgent thing I could do. And here we are at episode five of Indecent with Kiki Anderson, where NSFW meets LMAO. And not only have thousands of y'all decided to join us while we scream about dicks and clits, God and the internet, we're actually getting some respect in our name. Amazon Podcast just listed us under best podcast to listen to and editor's choice. So from the bottom of our filthy little hearts, thank you for listening, for sharing, subscribing, all the things. Now, let's get into what we do best. We talk a lot about taboos and polite society on this podcast. It's kind of our whole deal. Who sets up the boundaries in today's society and why? Last time we got deeper in the guts of organized religion than your gyno during a pap smear, with the help of sex-positive preacher Levon Briggs. I believe God is kinky. That's something that, you know, many of us are not ready for that conversation. But I will say, many of us were raised in communities that talked about God as if God has a penis. When in fact, there are both masculine and feminine qualities to the creator. So it's really important that we talk about God as bigger than a man, but again, when you're in a patriarchal society, they're going to create God in their own image. Now, it might not shock anyone that spiritual leaders of every stripe have kept their hands firmly on the throat of our sexual self-expression for centuries, and not in a fun way, all while shielding more pedophiles in the basement of a pizza shop. But if we're talking about control and who determines what is and isn't acceptable, then we gotta cover every peak and valley and hill. I'm talking about Jonah Hill. Fuck me, right? If you haven't heard, Jonah Hill got caught over text using some bastardized therapy speak to gaslight his ex, telling her that his personal boundaries include her not posting bikini pics or going surfing with men whose washboard abs, I can only assume, make him so insecure that his body sucks his little micro penis right back into itself. By now the story's about a week old and you've probably heard every take. Hopefully ones that include the fact that this chick is a professional surfer, meaning it's her literal job to dress in swimwear and hang out with some of the most rockin' bods on the planet. So all I'm gonna say on it is, Jonah Hill suffers from a widespread phenomenon called sad little bitch boy syndrome. And unfortunately, even fame and fortune cannot fix it. This particular form of brain rot afflicts people who maybe didn't feel good about themselves growing up and they never healed, they never moved on. They continue to feel personally victimized by anyone who is more comfortable in their skin than they are. More often than not, their problem is women. Dude, I'm doing crazy stuff like that like all the time, man. You are. Look, if Jonah's looks still cause him pain to this day, it's his duty as an adult to find healing and inner peace, instead of making extremely boring self-indulgent documentaries about his therapist, who clearly didn't do a very good job. And this is all coming from someone who has serious body shame and trauma, okay? I was born with two skeletal deformities, I was in a car accident that nearly killed me, my body is covered in scars. So I understand the pain of hating your body or the way you look, but at some point, you gotta learn to love what you got. All of this just to say that Jonah Hill represents a lot of men in this country, and they're almost worse than Bible-thumping misogynists because at least we know where they stand. Jonah Hill and these dudes hide in the shadows, obsessively monitoring their girlfriend's actions while they publicly support get-out-the-vote campaigns because choice is an American right unless you're Jonah's girlfriend. 
And choice is exactly what we're talking about this week. We're talking body autonomy and freedom of sexual expression one year after the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. Arch conservatism has been fisting its way up the backsides of these dusty, robed Muppets for years. And by that, I mean the judges, of course. But abortion's actually been around forever. Probably the earliest historical reference to abortion actually dates back to India over a thousand years ago. Not surprisingly, it mentions the punishment for providing an abortion. Sadly, the stigma predates Hobby Lobby and all the Photoshop fetus posters that came out of it. However, there have been some semi-sane people throughout history. Big homie Aristotle believed that a fetus that was less than five weeks old wasn't even a human yet. I'm not fucking with you, this man actually believed that fetuses had the soul of a vegetable. Yes, really. And killing it was no big deal. I know, it's a weird take, but honestly, it's not any weirder than thinking a fetus has, like, opinions or whatever. Anyway, there's also evidence of abortion practices dating back for centuries in Southeast Asia, Japan, and among the Maori people of New Zealand. Now, let's fast forward to the 1700s. With how much time Americans spend simping the Founding Fathers, you'd assume that we take everything they say as gospel. Unfortunately, we don't. What about Ben Franklin? He actually wrote a recipe for an at-home abortion. Yeah, don't adjust your volume. You heard me right. Colonial Americans were advised to use careful measurements in a recipe that Franklin used for an abortive fashion. Yeah, that's a word I just learned. He used the recipe as an example in a book that he published to teach math and many other useful skills, and he calls the recipe a solution to the, quote, misfortune of an unwanted pregnancy for, quote, unmarried women. Something he'd know a lot about, considering how much Benny loved prostitutes. A hundred years later, it's the 1800s, when the first major anti-abortion movement started in the U.S. It wasn't led by religious kooks. No, no. It was led by the American Medical Association those bastards. They got their titties in a twist because midwives who were performing abortions were cutting into their profits. The AMA was not down with this. This is an organization that was founded in 1847. They excluded women, black people, of course, and they were trying to establish themselves as a gatekeeper in the medical profession. Abortion services made midwives and other non-traditional practitioners an easy target. During this time, at least 40 anti-abortion laws went in the books between 1860 and 1880. That brings us to our modern era. I won't harp on it too much, you've lived it. By the 90s and the 2000s, anti-choicers were spreading faster than chunky highlights and skinny eyebrows. An abortion provider named Dr. George Tiller was running one of only three abortion clinics which provided late-term terminations. After surviving firebombings and an assassination attempt, he ended up being killed at his church while he was serving as an usher. Church and guns, that's what America does. Anyway, that brings us to today's guest. We are talking to community-educated artist and advocate Viva Ruiz, whose work has been featured in festivals and art spaces all over the US and Europe. Viva uses their artwork to fight for reproductive healthcare access and freedom. In 2015, they founded the Thank God for Abortion Initiative, which uses everything from t-shirt designs, art installations, rallies and parties to destigmatize abortion and normalize it as a necessary part of healthcare. If you're not familiar with their work, it received a Creative Capital Artistic Activism Award in 2022. I highly recommend Googling Viva to see the picture of them dressed as the Pope, standing outside of the Vatican with a giant sign that reads, thank God for abortion. It's pretty sick. I sat down with Viva to ask why people are so obsessed with these tiny balls of cells that contain basically as much life as a tumor. 
What are the roadblocks for normalizing abortion? And how can we turn back the clock to a time when people minded their own goddamn business? Hi, Viva. Hey, Kiki. How's it going? Good, good. Thank you so much for being with us. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. I love to party. So uh, tell me a little about yourself. Uh, most important thing, I'm a, I'm a New Yorker. No, that is, <laughs> that is one of the important things. But yes, I am a native New Yorker um, and Ecuadorian. I'm first generation on this side of um, the world. My family's all Ecuadorian and I'm a queer person. I'm a gender fluid person. I'm a person who's had two abortions. And surprisingly, that ended up figuring to be a much bigger. I mean, it's it's so pivotal, right? It's like, it's, I have the life I have because of the abortions I had, but I did not know that it was going to become like such a humongous part of my life where I'd be speaking about it and making work about it and performing. And, and that's been a lot of my creative output in the last few years is around abortion. But outside of that, I was a nightlife person. I, I still am a nightlife person. I played in punk rock bands. I'm a drummer and a bassist. You know, all different kinds of things and a vocalist lately for um, electronic music. But all these things, I'm a Gemini, let's say. I'm a Gemini, in short. <laughs> what a mix. Gemini, punk rock, Jamaica, Queens, queer, not a quiet person. <laughs> no, it's that Gemini sun, cancer rising, moon in Aquarius situation. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, boy. That, that's more words than I actually know what they mean, but it just, it sounds, it, it sounds like a cocktail. <laughs> so, um... It's been a journey. And then the next phase was when I started talking about abortion in 2015. And I came to um, make a suite of designs that I called the joy of abortion. And they combine Christian imagery with positive phrases around abortion, like thank God for abortion, that were distinctly Christian looking. And I did that because it was already happening that cl clinics were closing, you know, and that's the event. That's the Christian right that's done this. And They've done it with God at, you know, claiming God. So that was strategy to also claim God in the full opposite way to pull it back and to give us a place to stand because they don't get to have God for themselves. Mm. You know, and their interpretation of God is their interpretation of God. Um, and ours is ours. And we needed more space for our, uh, for our belief. And I didn't know that that project was going to have, you know, I really didn't think it was going to go anywhere because it was so divisive even around my people because people were not, um, you know, it really unearths these internalized, like, okay, but we can't say it like that. Like, okay, pro mm -hmm. we can't say pro-abortion. You know, there's been a shift out of necessity. I mean, we have to not be polite anymore. The right are so ruthless and relentless. Mm -hmm. And the left can really, you know, there can be more care on the left, which is great. But in another way, when we say pro-abortion instead of pro-choice, we're just being clear that there's nothing. And also with people have, feel a certain way about it, it's okay because then it comes up, we can talk about it. And we can, we can see, like, why is that uncomfortable for you? Oh, there's some internalized, it, we can't really be joyous about abortion or it can't really be positive. It only has to be traumatic. And it, it can be traumatic for people. And it really can be. But it's not only that for everybody. And when that experience is only one thing, which it has only been one thing for so long, 
you know what? We have to really go. It doesn't have to be all of us, but many more of us have to really be in a full shamelessness about this healthcare. Because when we cringe a little bit or we, it's apologetic. There's, we've been apologetic for too long. It's healthcare. So that we're in a big shift right now of consciousness, I think. And it's necessary because people are suffering, right? People, and the thing is, when Roe v. Wade was legal, a lot of people didn't have access because legality doesn't mean access necessarily. You know, you still have to have money or, or even like the stigma, you know, culturally, my people, there's so in, in let, let's say Latinx, let, let, Latino, Latina people, church has such a stronghold on sexual, on gender, on sexual preference, on abortion, on sex. And it's so around gender lines that the stigma that you could have to have one could be the biggest barrier. Then there's money. Then there's like, now there's like, it's illegal in 13 states. So Viva, what does God say about abortion? Mm, this is a great question. What God says about abortion is, um, I love you. That's what God says about abortion. God says, be what you came to be, which is your biggest self, your most expansive self. Be blessed in your abortion. Be blessed in your self-determination. What's your highest self? What's your most realized self? Is it is it you being a lesbian? Is it you being a trans person? Go be that. Be your highest self. Be your most self-determined self. Your most expansive self. Is it you having 10 abortions because you're not uh, someone that wants to make children or those, are, if those aren't the times that you want to make it? Then go have 10 abortions. Go be blessed. Go be your highest, most expansive self. I love you. That's what God says about abortion. Hmm. I like that. Because it's so interesting. I didn't really grow up religious, but I hear from a lot of my religious, my friends who grew up religious, that there's, it always surprises me how they have like a turning point in their religion or their spirituality at a very young age. They either reject it. This guy I used to date, like at the age of eight was like, this religion's not for me. But it sounds like you were like, actually, this religion is for me, but I'm picking these parts out of the Bible. So like, can you tell me when you had that kind of moment where you were like, no, this is my aha moment. This is my like, yes, you can be a spiritual person and also be like progressive and stand for these rights that protect women's bodies. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think it was in childhood that I really loved Jesus. I mean, I come from an immigrant family who didn't speak English. And we lived in a neighborhood of all immigrants in Queens. So I understand later, I understood the, the power of the church in that if you go to a new country, a church is where you speak your language, you have your mass in the same language that you grew up with, you have with people of the same culture that you came from. So it's, it's very important past spirituality. It's a way that people survive in this country or different places. And that's very important. So I understand now how, how important, you know, that kind of, that kind of uh, uh, meeting and practice is. And that helps him, that helped give me compassion because later, you know, of course I did have that punk rock moment of like, fuck God and fuck the church because of how institutionally 
dangerous it is. And it's been forever if you're not, you know, straight, if you're not also white in this country, you know, like the church, as we know, the evangelists, the white, the white right is evangelists. Like it's the KKK is Christian. So there are, you know, there were divisions that when I, you know, when I, I guess I was a teenager, teenager, really, that I just was like, fuck the church. I became punk rock, of course. And then later I had compassion again, just because I understood the things that I said about, you know, migrant people needing to convene around something like church. It's, it's life-saving, you know, that you can speak your language and, and have these principles of like, how do we survive this terrible thing? And the church is, and spirituality is a way people get through terrible, terrible hardship. Mm-hmm. And so it is necessary for, for many people. And that made me compassionate about the church. At the same time, I'm seeing the hypocrisy, you know, you can see the hypocrisy of how rich the Vatican is, how protected pedophilia is, you know, these things have to figure in. But I did come back around to love again, Jesus Christ. I'll say that openly because it's important because people who claim Jesus are usually cuckoo <laughs> and, you know, Nazis or whatever, racist. And and so it is really important that people of faith who, you know, are not um, white supremacists <laughs> name, name God. And, and, you know, the black radical tradition has long been, you know, has so many roots in the church. So we have examples of like revolutionaries, you know, having God at their core. Well, and I think sometimes the left, uh, you know, when when you talk about church, yeah, it does elicit some types of painful imagery. Even me, like in my stand-up, I used to make fun of the church because for me, it was a white guy who was probably a pedophile and hated women, you know? But I think in my own journey, I have found that actually what the left sometimes lacks is spirituality because they've worked so hard to get away from that imagery that there is no, like, binding morality. It's like, well, what a- what exactly are we fighting for here? I mean, first of all, I if people want to hate the church, I think there's a lot to hate that's rightfully. <laughs> we need to hate a lot of what they condone and stand for, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And what you said about um, this is entirely true, that the left can be really terrible to people with spiritual beliefs because there's like this intellectual hierarchy or like rationality, which is not like I don't have that too, but is specifically in the abortion world. That's something that I have been speaking about that as people who are trying to remove barriers. We can't also judge people. There are many, many people who have abortions who are of faith, mm-hmm. right? They feel terrible about their abortions, but they have them anyway, which is incredible. And what can we do to remove their shame? It's unnecessary. What a terrible thing to feel condemned, to feel like you hate yourself because you took care of yourself. Mm-hmm. And that's that the left really needs to step into is the acceptance that many of us are spiritual people and even have, you know, are even can be Christian, even can be Catholic, even can be anything and, you know, be for collective liberation. Like that's not even new. Again, there's so many civil rights leaders that were all, you know, Jesus people. So today it's something that I do mention because of course the church has done so much harm and the church is a key enemy for autonomy, right? Mm-hmm. They really are. We have to say that as an institution, I think it's, it's important to dismantle that, talk about that, but spirituality and belief is different. 
is really different. And when somebody loves Jesus or God or any God, Allah, um, there's a lot of activists, Muslim activists, you know, for repro justice, right? Always, always. There's always been all these people around being faithful and having abortions and, and providing and, and supporting. And um, it's just super, super important that we don't introduce barriers. Right? There's so many barriers. There's stigma. How are we going to introduce a barrier of judgment on people who love God? Like that's not, we'll, we'll be acting against our interests, our principles. And that, that's the work for abortion as well, that we have to humanize people who have abortions because the right has been really good at just focusing on what they call the baby, right? Mm -hmm. So the whole thing is about the baby. I'm speechless really to address even what that means, but like, so it's ridiculous when there's a whole person that they're ignoring, right? To focus on what, what they call the baby, you have to invisibilize the woman that's pregnant, the the person that's pregnant. Where do you think that comes from? Do you think do you think these people just hate women? Absolutely. Right? Right? Because <laughs> there's really no other answer. Like, why would you why would you prioritize a concept of something that's not even existent yet in, over the person that's sitting in front of you? Absolutely. I mean, you think if cis men, you know, there are many people who said this. If cis men could be pregnant, none of this would be happening. Yeah. None of this. You would you you would be rewarded for each abortion you got. You get a bonus. You get time off. You know what I mean? Like this is gender-based violence, and it's gender-based violence whether you're a woman or a trans person seeking an abortion. It's both of them are gender-based violence because it's it maintains a structure of power. And that power needs, you know, a certain person to be on top, to stay on top. So if women's sole purpose is to sexually gratify men and bear their children, what are we supposed to do with the rest of our time? Just like stand there in the corner, idling like Sims? Everyone loves getting brain until the brain starts having opinions. But swirling around in that sloppy toppy, there's been a lot of good ideas. Women are like so much more than milk trucks. Like, how about all the cool shit you can do on your iPhone? You couldn't do it without Grace Murray Hopper, the decorated U.S. Naval officer and the so-called mother of computer science. She accomplished so much in her life, including earning more than 40 honorary degrees. Now, I'm not saying women can't have it all, I'm just saying. If Grace was a stay-at-home mom making lunches and changing diapers, we might have not been able to Google Aristotle's stance on abortion. Shove. And what about all the other stuff we have thanks to the childless women that made them, like Pride and Prejudice or Sense and Sensibility? British author Jane Austen wrote so much groundbreaking work about women's hunger for independence that it probably comes as no shock that she never had to fight a toddler down for a nap. She didn't just write it, she was really about that life. The one and only time she received a marriage proposal, she actually turned the dude down. Cold world, no blanket. If books aren't your thing, maybe civil rights are. Rosa Parks, the icon that sparked one of the most important protests for racial justice, might have missed that bus if she had to get the little ones ready for school. And American women might have had to wait even longer for the right to vote if it weren't for the tireless efforts of suffragette Susan B. Anthony, who might have not been so tireless if she had to wake up multiple times a night to whip out her titties and breastfeed. Art museums would be like way more boring without the works of Frida Kahlo and Georgia O'Keeffe. Fleetwood Mac's The Chain and Joan Jett's bad reputation only exists because of Stevie Nicks and Joan Jett's unapologetic baddie girl attitudes about putting their careers first. 
And the same goes for patron saints, Betty White, Lily Tomlin, Dolly Parton, Helen Mirren, who said she tells people who ask her when she's planning on getting pregnant to quote, fuck off. Yes, that's awesome. Even the woman who invented Mother's Day, Anna Jarvis, wasn't even a mother. All I'm saying is women do the same dope shit as men, but no man's ever been forced to do it with a baby on his titty. And lest we forget, the Bible says that women are made from the same blood and guts as men, literally from their rib cages. Which is why it's so frustrating to hear these crazy arguments against personal choice. So let's go back to Viva Ruiz to hear more about how we deal with this hot mess. Can you talk to me a little bit about your experience with abortion and, uh, you know, how that has influenced your work? Yeah, I mean, my abortions, uh, the way I tell my abortion story, I am an abortion storyteller, but the way I tell my story is through art and music and dance and this kind of organizing I do is a way that I tell my story. Because my story is, thank God, <laughs> thank God I had abortions because I am just not somebody that can't that wants kids, you know, and I have been, you know, not everybody needs to love kids. We can all be all whoever we are, you know, but I actually do love children and I have helped raise many children. I mean, I, it's funny that the right things like I eat children for dinner and sacrificing when I have, I really, this is for them. You know, this is for kids. I've helped raise that they have a better time of it. Mm -hmm. You know, they're at the time where they, have to make these decisions for themselves that they're not locked into something they don't want to do. How cruel, how, how loveless is that? Yeah. How godless is that? So that's how I tell my story. I mean, my stories, I've, I've had two, they were pretty unremarkable. I live in New York. I had, you know, partners the both times that, that paid for it. One was supportive. One wasn't, one was abusive. One wasn't either way. I was not going to have them. And that's really, the nuts and bolts of it. It's not remarkable because it's just so normal. How do you think your life would be different if you had been forced to carry through the pregnancies? I mean, if, when people are, I mean, that's a war crime, you know, forcing pregnancy, the United Nations classifies as a war crime. And that is how lethal, that's why people threaten, you know, harm to themselves if they can't have it. And that happens all the time. You know, that people, there is no alternative for some people. And then when people are, if I was forced into pregnancy, I don't know, you know, I don't know if I would be here today. I don't know if I would be here today. And I have so much gratitude for the care that I did receive that I can't, it really is a motivator for me that it's not fair, it's not fair that I get to have that and other people don't. It's just not fair. And it's not fair is a really big um statement for me. <laughs> it's a really big life statement for me. And what do we do when something's not fair? I got to do something. Mm -hmm. I have to do something. But again, to circle back to what can we do? You know, I didn't know that just speaking or making, you know, something that I was like, just this artwork was going to make any difference. And I will tell you in the, in the span of the time I've done this, the one-on-one -on -one conversations I've had with people who have had abortions or going to have abortions or providing abortions, Every single, even just one of them would have made it worth it. And it's been so many of them that it makes me have more faith in spirit and God that I know that this is compassion. It's love. And it's how we keep each other safe. You know, it's how we build for each other, not just for ourselves in a selfish way, but how, what can we do for someone else today? 
And for those Christians listening who disagree, it's, it is really, let's be in that love your neighbor life. You know, when we have access to abortion, we are loving our neighbor. When we defend abortion, we love our neighbor. And that is what Jesus would do. That's the answer to that question. A lot of your artwork, I, I, I want to hear a little bit about your artwork, but what I was looking at on the internet, it's kind of cheeky. It's kind of funny. And I'm 31 years old, but I'm old enough to remember when you couldn't even really do jokes about abortion. It was like, uh-oh, they're doing an abortion joke. What's going to happen next? And I think that we have moved, moved past that. Um, but it sounds like you're on the, you know, your boots on the ground. And this is something, obviously, that is still very controversial. Can you talk to me a little bit about the cheekiness and like what we see in your art? Yeah, that was a part of it. That was a part definitely in, in the middle of the project that um, it's funny. I don't think it's ironic, but it is shameless. It's very shameless. And it's not ironic because it's actually ex extremely not erotic, I ironic, maybe erotic, but not <laughs> ironic because I do love God and I have had abortions. And I did say thank God for abortion after my abortions because thank God for abortion. But it does work. It's, it can be seen as a troll. We're, we are trolling the right. It's an incredible troll of the right. And another word for it is agitation, which is a tactic of, of movement building. Um, the agitation is a tool that is like, what does it mean? It just shakes people out of status quo, out of complacency. So something that can just like jolt you. And that was, the, that was part of it. And also what you're saying, the... Um, what you're calling cheekiness, I think, because I come from nightlife and I am a performer, a show pony, I like to call myself, at, or have been a show pony at times. Um, regalia is a big, is important to me. You know, as a performer, it's like, what's our looks? What's our looks as a nightlife host, as a, as a DJ, as somebody who goes out? I'm, I am of the night world. Uh, I am of the queer world. And that is queer medicine. You know, our looks. Our, our sparkle, our glamour, that's queer medicine. That's another tactic, you know, that we, that we carry in. And, and to be honest, I learned a lot of that from the church because the church has looks and pomp and circumstance and pageantry and regalia. And, you know, is, you know, there's a lot of correlation between queer life and what, you know, the, the uh, fabulousness. Yeah, the church is low-key gay. <laughs> Absolutely. It's, giving fa it's giving fab. It's giving glitter sequins. And that is a tactic to enchant. And also the words stick better when there's be beauty is, is, is a tool. So that is something that I have from nightlife and the church has been part of Thank God for Abortion. We had a float, you know, there is, there are costumes, there is, there are crowns, there is gold, there's guilt. It is something that is something to behold, you know, that, it, that can work. And the arts, and those are the arts, you know, that's performance, that's sculpture, that's costume, that's music. And the arts work in different ways. Like we can talk and do panels and write books. But the way a song hits is different. Mm. And the way a look, you see somebody in a look with their crown prancing down the street with a scepter that says abortion, that's going to hit you in a different place. And a lot of people hate it. You know, that's part of it is that like, I know. And in 2015, we started doing this. And like you said, there weren't a lot of jokes about abortion until recently. And it was dangerous. You know, there is a part of it that feels still. And then then more, now more people are on the scene, I think. And that makes us all safer. So I really want everybody to be 
you know, high kicking for abortion, to be honest, because when we're the only ones when or when there's not a lot of us, it feels dangerous. Mm-hmm. You know, it's because people get really angry about God and abortion together in a light way. <laughs> you know what I mean? And not just on the right. The right are, of course, unhinged, completely unhinged and violent. But truly on the left, even 2015 and Pride, even this last Pride, you know, there's always people that are like, you don't belong here or you can't say it. You shouldn't say it that way. And we literally had a marching band mm-hmm. on Sunday, this Sunday. We had an abortion marching band <laughs> and we had all the incredible looks and it was a coalition for the first time this year. We've, we've been in Pride since 2015, but this year it was Shout Your Abortion, Plan C Pills, Online Abortion Resource Squad and New York City for Access, New York City for Abortion Rights. And all of us marched together at Pride in a queer contingent. And it was so beautiful. And we played When the Saints Go Marching In. And we played, the band played We Are Family. And it's the vibration of that with abortion that has been effective. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. Whether it makes people upset or it makes people happy, it's effective either way. Yeah. Because it's really hard to get mad at something that's got a good beat. (laughs) Yeah. It's another way to absorb the medicine. A little spoonful of sugar, spoonful of honey. So I want to go back to something you said earlier um, that I thought was super interesting because we're talking about like this rebrand that we're going through and how we can be more inclusive and remove shame and remove stigma. And something that you said earlier was we got to stop being polite, which is something that I struggle with sometimes because I'm like, well, nobody wants to listen to somebody that's yelling at you. But also some people don't deserve your patience. So where where is that fine line when you're fighting for a cause like abortion? Right, 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 right. Um, I think not being polite can be, or I, I'm talking, because I, I love to yell. I'm a yeller, <laughs> that's for sure. If you see me on the street, I'm the one yelling. Um, but, and there are other ways to approach. Like the design is also, is very bold, it's very direct. And in that way, it's not tiptoeing. So that's may, maybe what I mean more, that, that it, when we say pro-choice, when we say, you know, for a long time, the word the word abortion is just ne- in the last few years being so like freely named by name. You know, there's a reason that that has not been so. We've been talking about choice, 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 choice. Like it's abortion. That's what we're talking about. And that's what I mean. Like we can let go of our niceties or like our, our uh, there's something around um, politeness there, you know, uh, or a kind a softer we don't need to soften something that isn't yeah point out the elephant in the room let's talk about it yeah and it is that's what i mean by instead of being polite let's just be truthful mm-hmm. you know not we don't necessarily have to yell but let's tell the truth instead of you know trying to make everybody n- like us yeah or trying to sl- or trying to sneak by with something that we should be walking through the open door with you know like there's nothing to hide. This is a fact of life. People need this. People need it exist. Yeah. And it's, it's really sad because a lot of women, you know, have, I don't know if it's Stockholm syndrome or whatever, but like, you know, there's a lot of women that uphold anti-abortion legislation and yeah. anti-abortion, you know, sentiment. Like they're, it's, it's white men and the women that love them, 
you know, that. And the thing is, it's, this is, it's so incredible. You know, I've been working for a few years in this world. So I, I have really beautiful relationships with clinics and providers who for me are the most important people in the world, right? Who are doing this love work, this compassionate healthcare, in spite of, you know, the danger mm -hmm. that is out there because there is danger in America. You know, there have been bombings. There have been, you know, murders of people who, who do this work. So they, the providers are people who we always have to lift up. And the more that we are visible around abortion, the safer everybody is. Like the more normalized, right, this healthcare is, the safer everybody is. But I really pray for the providers every day for their safety and, and love. But they have told me, you know, the people that pick it outside the clinics, there's always people that pick it outside and are like, you're killing your baby, blah, blah, blah. The same people come in for their abortions. What? You've seen that a lot? That's what providers have told me. And of course, it's not like it is like your mouth drop, your jaw drops. But also, of course, because abortion is necessary. Right. Doesn't matter how you feel about it. You might need one. That's how irrational it is to be against healthcare. You would see some crazy stuff on the, on the streets. Like, you know, you're working out there all the time. What's some of the craziest language or some of the craziest arguments you've seen out there that are anti-abortion? I mean, all of it is kind of just comical. None of it. All is of it's crazy. <laughs> yeah. It, it's none of it is innovative. And that's the thing that, that the right wing are just they're just corny. It's sad. Like they can't even be funny about it. Like they're corny. Their graphics suck. They are, there's no real artwork on the, on the right because they're boring and um, God bless them. God bless. I pray for them too. Um, the crazy, I mean, the craziest thing for me are, are, um, you know, death threats because that's not funny. And there's a, what I've noticed, you know, online over the years is the rise of the teenage white militant, you know, that, I mean, abortion, people, abortion people, sex workers, you know, we've, there are people, none of this is new to a lot of us, right? I mean, it's, fascism is here and the youth are being indoctrinated. The youth on the right have grown up in these really intense times of um, disinformation, you know, the last few years of conspiracies and, you know, they're kids that are growing up in this with this gun love and it's really really terrifying that's legitimately terrifying yeah and it blows my mind too just to stray for a second because there are things that are actually going to kill us all probably in the near future whether it's running out of water nuclear war everything climate related but instead we're fighting about like a like something academic about these kids that might be but don't exist yet like why don't you pick a cause that's more prominent and sitting right in front of you. Right. I mean, that is something that we, I mean, if we're going to be Christian, right, let's say we're going to be Christian, then we have to talk about the poor. And yes, we need to defend children. And there are so many that need help. I mean, we, we talk about ICE a lot, you know, ICE detention through every kind of administration is disgusting, you know, is inhuman, is genocidal. And that's where, you know, Republican Democrat to us is like, whatever like there's still kids in jail under either administration and you know the people who are so obsessed with these like non-entities 
could we direct them to where they can help children? You know, there are children to, to really help right now. Yeah, why don't they channel that anger somewhere more productive? <laughs> yeah, we need, I was like, you know, I say that, to, we say that to them, we need you, but we need it where you can make a difference. Like you're not, they, they get to be lazy. They get to not do anything when people are obsessed about abortion. It's a lazy thing you can do. Thank God for Viva Ruiz. It's truly wild in that people can care more about something the size of a fingernail than a fully formed human being. Thou shalt not kill unless it's a woman with free will. Save the babies until the babies pass through the pussy hole. Then the babies gotta get a job, you big jabronis. God, this world is so nuts. Is it any wonder that someone might not want to bring another life into it? Rising fascism, record-breaking heat waves, rich people hoarding every last red cent. It's enough to give you an aneurysm every time you read the news. So how do we make sense of it? And more importantly, can we make it funny? Next time we're talking to two folks who might just give us some peace of mind. Fellow former journalist and current TV writer Natalie McGill and editor-in-chief of The Hard Times, Bill Conway. There was a Hard Times headline we did recently that I got many DMs from people that were like, this is something you cannot joke about. I don't know how you could do this. I, I didn't respond to a lot of it because like, well, see, I don't think you're getting the point of it, but it was just the headline I have it here is summer break forces gun store owners to prepare for slow season. So the... <laughs> Obviously, the joke is there'll be less school shootings over summer break, and people are like, you can't joke about school shootings. Uh, and like, well, this is not a joke about glorifying the violence that is happening in schools. It is about quite the opposite. New episodes come out every other Wednesday. Giving us a rating and a review is a huge help and makes sure other people can find the show. Indecent is a production of Next Chapter Podcast. Go to ncpodcast.com to learn more. And if you have something you want to talk to us about, a guest you want to recommend, or you just want to share a shitty text that an ex sent you, shoot us an email at indecentthepod at gmail.com or hit us up on social media at indecentkiki. Follow me at It's Kiki Anderson. My producers are Max Wolfson and Pete Musto, and our executive producer is Jeremiah Tittle. I'm Kiki Anderson, and this has been Indecent, where NSFW meets LMAO. Ever heard of Stoicism? Chances are, if you have, you've heard of Stoicism with a lowercase s, and not Stoicism with an uppercase s. Lone wolves, no emotions, antisocial behavior, cold, indifference, all that is Stoicism with a lowercase s. Stoicism with an uppercase s is the ancient Greek philosophy and virtue ethics framework that centers on service to the cosmopolis, to include your family, friends, community, and planet, and the development of a good moral character. My name is Tanner Campbell, and I'm the host of Practical Stoicism, a three times a week podcast teaching Stoic principles and concepts to anyone interested through the exploration of texts and deep dives into various moral topics. You can find Practical Stoicism where you're already listening to podcasts by searching for Practical Stoicism or by going to stoicismpod.com. I invite you to give it a listen today. You just might like it. Next Chapter Podcasts.